0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. We have invited Dr. Timothy Ball, a climatologist, one of the authors of a new book on climate called Slaying the Sky Dragon, Death of the Greenhouse Gas Theory. He's co-authored this book with Clays Johnson, Martin Hertzberg, Joseph Olson, Oliver Manuel, Alan Siddons, Charles Anderson, Hans Schroeder, and John O'Sullivan. Dr. Ball is also a writer for Canada Free Press who has articles every week in there that you can take a look at at CanadaFreePress.com. He was participating in the first climate segment that we did to lay out where the interest in climate has come from to talk about both generalization and specialization in science. He laid out and clarified a lot of issues for us, and he's been on several times. We've talked about the oceans He was on with Gavin Menzies. We had him on to talk about peer review, what people don't understand of how academia works with peer review and publishing. And today we're bringing him on to talk about slaying the sky dragon because I have several questions regarding permafrost, regarding greenhouse gases, and this whole carbon thing. And I think it's also a very pertinent time because Sir Richard Branson, the founder of Virgin, has just launched this week The Carbon War Room at carbonwarroom.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Dr. Tim Ball to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning.
1: Good morning, Kim, and thanks for the
0: opportunity. It's a pleasure. I learn a lot from you every time we come together. Thank you so much for that.
1: That's my objective, is to help people understand. And of course, the more we understand, the less we can be taken advantage of. That's the knowledge of education.
0: Can we start with this thing about greenhouse gases relative to climate? Could you lay it out for us? Because... A lot of us don't understand it and we don't know what it has to do with climate and we don't know how to respond when people say the greenhouse gases are causing this or that and therefore climate change is a problem. Explain it to us.
1: The concept of the greenhouse gases, the analogy, was created originally to help students understand why the earth is warmer than it should be if you just took the amount of energy coming in from the sun and the amount of heat going out from the earth. And without these so-called greenhouse gases, the Earth's temperature, which is um, on average about 15 degrees Celsius, without those greenhouse gases, the global temperature would be about minus 18 degrees Celsius. So they keep the planet much warmer than it would be if it was just a straight energy in and energy out pattern. And it's a similar idea, as I say, the analogy with the greenhouse, as become so much of our lexicon that we can't get rid of it, although we should, because it's a terrible analogy. The greenhouse really doesn't work the same way as the Earth's atmosphere, but nonetheless, we have to deal with the realities that are out there and help people understand. Now, the idea is that energy from the sun enters the greenhouse, passes through the glass, heats the surfaces inside, and in doing that, it changes from shortwave energy, which is sunlight, into long-wave energy, which is what's called sensible heat or heat you can feel. Now, to give you an idea, Kim, people say, oh, you know, I could feel the heat of the sun. You're not. What you're feeling is the sun's energy is causing the molecules in your skin to increase their rate of movement, called Brownian movement, and you feel that then as heat. You achieve the same thing if you simply rub the skin, you're causing the frictional effect then of Brownian movement and therefore more heat. Now, in the greenhouse, the shortwave energy passes through the glass and heats the inside, and then the long wave energy from the area that's heated cannot pass through the glass of the greenhouse. So in other words, the glass is acting like a one-way valve, letting shortwave in and blocking a long wave from going out. The argument is that the atmosphere works the same way, except that you now substitute the greenhouse gases for the glass in the greenhouse. And so the sunlight comes in, passes through the atmosphere, heats the ground, and this is something that most people uh, don't understand, they've got somewhat of a sense of it, but the atmosphere is not heated by the sun. There is a little bit of heating of the atmosphere by the sun, partly because of the dust particles in the atmosphere that absorb the heat. But the atmosphere is mostly heated by the ground.
0: And um, that's course, interesting, one... fascinating. I never knew that.
1: No, I know it's one of those simple things. And by the way, just to uh, put your mind around that, Kim, if you get in an airplane, even at the tropics, and you go up to seventy, eighty thousand feet, you're down to minus forty, minus fifty Celsius right away. And so you say, well, hold on a minute, I'm going towards the sun, shouldn't it be getting warmer? No, what you're doing is you're moving away from the source of the heat for the atmosphere, which is the surface. And of course, that's why the lowest temperatures, on average, occur after sunrise, because the heat from the ground is escaping, and then it takes time for the sun to come up, heat the ground, and start to raise the temperature again. So the air temperature continues to drop For a brief time after sunrise. So everywhere you look, you can see this phenomenon of the ground actually heating the atmosphere.
0: Fascinating. I don't think most of us know that.
1: No, I know. And as I said, one of the things that I learned teaching a science credit to art students is that it's the obvious that most people don't see. And the people that do see those things think, oh, that's so obvious, I don't need to explain that. So we end up with this complete disconnect in terms of understanding and communication. But anyway, the the heat now from the ground goes back towards space, and it's not a good word for it, but basically it's trapped by these greenhouse gases. And again, not a good analogy, but it's almost like heat from your body is held into your bed by the blanket. Okay, And of course, you get warmer under the blanket than the outside air. Now, with your body, of course, you've got to keep eating to create more energy to keep the heat going, because if you didn't, eventually you would lose all your body heat, no matter if you've got a blanket on it. But the greenhouse gases are then very important in maintaining the temperature of the Earth at this 15 degrees Celsius, which of course is what maintains uh, life. Now, this is where we get into the problem. Because the greenhouse gases, the primary ones, are water vapor, carbon dioxide, and methane. And uh, we're going to talk in a few minutes about permafrost, and of course it's the release of methane with the melting of that that's become an issue. But nonetheless, uh, the three major gases then are water vapor, carbon dioxide, and methane. Because of the political exploitation of climate change and the greenhouse effect, the focus has been all on CO2, and we've talked about that many times. We can talk about it some more, but the major greenhouse gas by far is water vapor. It's 95% of the greenhouse gases by volume so that CO2 is less than 4% of the greenhouse gases. And, of course, that's the reason why I keep asking people to understand that and then ask the question, well, why are they focusing on such a small part of this total greenhouse effect? Why are they? It's because Morris Strong made the comment about 30 years ago, and it was quoted in a book by Elaine Dewar when she was interviewing him, and he made the comment that the problem for the planet are the industrialized nations, and isn't it our responsibility to get rid of them? Now, this was partly because they argued that with industrialization and development, the world's become overpopulated. And, of course, that's the Club of Rome theme, that the world's overpopulated, we've got to get rid of the people— And industrialization is the engine of that expansion. Now, in fact, what's ironic about it is that actually as economies develop and industry increases, the population starts to decline.
0: How do we know that? Say that last thing again. It's called the demographic transition. So if anybody wants
1: to look it up, look at demographic transition. And it's the transition in population growth that occurs with increasing economy, increased reliability of food supply, more secure water supply, and so on. And what happens is that life expectancy increases, the death rate goes down, and then there's an increase in population for a while, but then the birth rate goes down, and the population initially stabilizes and then starts to decline. And you can see this in all the developed countries of the world. The normal rate of replacement, so if you're going to have 2.4 children per family, you would maintain your population. If you fall below that, the population starts to decline. And in all of the developed countries of the world, the rate has down to 1.5, 1.6. Quebec in Canada, for example, is 1.3. And countries have only offset this by immigration. That's what's maintained their population size. But it's a huge problem because in Japan, for example, where they haven't allowed immigration, you've got a decrease in the birth rate, a tremendous increase in the length of life, and therefore the population pyramid, which normally has a small number of people at the top and a lot of people, young people at the bottom, is now inverted. And of course, the uh, potential For that smaller and smaller young group supporting the larger and larger old group is creating huge problems demographically, economically, and socially. And in many countries of the world, they have introduced a financial incentive to increase the birth rate. For example, in Italy, they have a deal where you get $1,000 automatically if you have a third child. Quebec, the same idea. So you can see that this argument that they were making with the Club of Rome about industrialization and development leads to overpopulation, in fact, is exactly the opposite. They've got it 100% wrong. But anyway, Mars Strong took up this banner of the Club of Rome. And by the way, the connection there with the Obama administration is that one of the driving forces for the Club of Rome was a book called Population Bomb by Paul Ehrlich, And he made all sorts of predictions about the world population that have all proved totally wrong. And one of the people working with him, and in fact was a co-author on some articles, was John Holdren, who is now the science czar in the Obama administration. But back to Morris Strong, so he said, okay, we've got to get rid of the industrialized nations. Well, how do you go about doing that? Well, you can shut off the energy supply if you can compare an, an industrialized nation to the engine in a car, and it's a good analogy because they both run on the fossil fuels primarily. You can squeeze the fuel lines, shut off the flow, and the car will stop, the engine will stop. But if you did that, people would scream immediately. and. Politicians have experienced that, for example, when the oil prices went up a couple of years ago or with Jimmy Carter, when he had the fuel lines and the social unrest that develops instantly. But if you could show that the byproduct of burning that fossil fuel, one of them is CO2, the primary byproduct, is destroying the planet through global warming and then subsequently climate change, then you could use that as a vehicle to shut down industries and say, no, they're producing too much CO2. And of course, that's come into the carbon footprint and reduction of carbon when they're really talking about reduction of CO2. Let me just that's tell you. That's the whole thrust of what's going on at Cancun in Mexico right now
0: with the climate conference. What's so remarkable to me is the level at which most of us have ingested and blindly accepted the news and not really been willing to look at the science. And of course, a lot of people say, well, do you know how many people have agreed that carbon dioxide is of danger to humanity and the earth's going to fall apart if we don't do something and we're in a state of emergency? People have even said to me, how dare you? Who do you think you are? You're not a teacher. You're not a climatologist. You're just a journalist. Well, I'm not even a journalist. But the fact is that people need to understand the basics of how climatologists agree on what is. (laughs) When you talk about 95% of the greenhouse gases that people are referring to as water vapor, and only 4% is CO2, I guess that leaves 1% to methane, correct?
1: Actually, methane is even smaller than that. Methane is about point zero zero nine percent of the greenhouse gases. And of course, that's why back when they were attacking the cattle and the cattlemen, and they wanted to get rid of beef, and the people with the ethical treatment of animals and so on after the cattle farmers. So they pointed at methane and said, oh, it's a greenhouse gas and it's destroying the planet. In fact, the level of methane in the atmosphere has gone down for the last 15 years. But nobody talks about that. And that's why it's fallen off the edge of the table as a problem.
0: I can't remember who I was talking to because I talked to too many people. (laughs) But I was talking to somebody. And they said, everybody has a bias. The question is, can you own your own? And if you can own your own, you can have an open conversation about something because you're not trying to hide your bias. Let me tell you my bias. I don't like the way animals are treated when they go to slaughter and the way they're treated before they come to slaughter. And I don't believe that animals have to suffer for us to eat. So that's just one thing. My other bias is that I don't like the chemicals that are used on vegetables, the chemicals that are dumped into our water, and the chemicals that are dumped into our air by aerosol spraying. So I have issues with that. I really do. And I have a fear that there's too much mercury in fossil fuels and other things we don't know about that if we had a replacement for it having nothing to do with carbon dioxide if people who had more efficient forms of energy would be empowered to bring them through to the world instead of being attacked and their patents being taken and all that i would go for it but i have a legitimate concern for some of the chemicals that come out of fossil fuels
1: first of all uh, your comment my bias. About bias is very legitimate everybody has a bias it's a matter of the degree of that bias and a willingness to open your mind. And, of course, that's the advantage you have of opening your mind and saying, OK, I've got a bias, but I'm willing to listen to you. And if you can give me uh, good, reasonable arguments and logical arguments, I think John Maynard Cain said, if I learn something that changes my mind, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? and, and- <laughs> And biases, by the way, are like problems, and they are a problem in themselves. They're only a problem if you're not aware of them. Right. And once you're aware of the problem, you're halfway to solving it. Once you're aware of the bias, then you can accommodate it. One of the things I like in England, for example, compared to, say, North American newspapers, is that you buy a newspaper in England because of its bias, For example, if you want a socialist newspaper, you buy the Manchester Guardian, or the Guardian, as it's now called. And you know that's what you're going to get, is a left-wing point of view. And therefore, you can read the paper with that accommodation for the bias. Or if you want to read the right-wing point of view, you buy the Daily Telegraph. What I don't like is the idea that somehow the New York Times doesn't have a bias. A Bias, if you declare it, is a much, much better way to deal with it. So I, I really appreciate what you're saying.
0: I don't even know if you know this, but I have a company called The Rainmaking Company, and that company provides a whole systems brand of communication services, marketing services, strategic services, and development services. And I have to tell you that with regard to being biased, I think it was six months ago, I interviewed the attorney who wanted to create an ecocide law. And she was really lovely coming onto the show. And I talked to her about the fact that carbon dioxide is being used as a vehicle to push through something that has nothing to do with the reality of what's happening with climate. And I was still open to her. And she had no idea about carbon. Her name is Polly Higgins, by the way. And she became open to learning in the middle of the show. I said, I agree with you on everything you're saying except this point right here, this one point. And this point is the basis by which this new cap-and-trade system is being created, all these new sustainable companies are being created, and all these new laws trying to push through Congress and the Senate are emerging. And she was very open. You know, here she is, she's a barrister from England, but I had to say my bias yep. in order to open her up or to create an open space for her as a guest. But we have to be able to separate the wheat from the chaff here. And that's why I like the fact that you explain climatology and you really get into the details. One
1: of the things that the Obama administration did through the Environmental Protection Agency was there was a a lawsuit that went before the Supreme Court arguing that the state of Massachusetts argued that CO2 was a toxic substance and therefore the EPA should deal with it because that's their responsibility, dealing with toxic substances. The EPA, many people argue, and I tend to agree with them, deliberately lost that case. The Supreme Court then ruled on that basis that CO2 was a toxic substance and therefore the EPA had the right to control it. Now, I'm, I'm telling you this because this goes through something towards the end of the story because even though they're going to cancel the cap and trade or won't pass it in the Senate or the Congress, the EPA now has the authority to simply go in on their word and shut down an industry saying you're producing too much CO2. Now, what's interesting about the Supreme Court ruling on this toxic substance was it was five to four, and people like Justice Scalia said, this is scientific rubbish. The EPA then, once they'd got that ruling of the toxic substance, had to, because of U.S. legislation, get comments from the public about how they viewed this enactment of CO2 as a toxic substance. I was part of a group that submitted an opposition to it because CO2 is not a toxic substance. It's absolutely essential to life on the planet. And it's not affecting the weather and climate, as they claim. And one of the points that I made as my part of the brief was that I wanted power of attorney on behalf of the plants to vote on any vote to reduce the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. Because right now we're at 385 parts per million, and that's the lowest in 300 million years. Plants function best between 1,000 and 1,200 parts per million, and we know that from research through Dr. Idso, but we also know it because commercial greenhouses pump that level of CO2 into their greenhouses to increase the yields by a factor of four. So when we start getting into the science of CO2 and the exploitation, now out of biases come agendas. So you have a particular bias to something, you create an agenda to achieve that bias. And all of us have agendas. We all uh, want to try and, and change things or do things to achieve our bias. Of course, the term agenda has become a, a very negative term. Oh, have always got an agenda. But we all have agendas. To be academic about it, just for a minute, Mother Teresa, you could argue quite reasonably that her agenda was to uh, use the sickest of the sick and the poorest of the poor because she wanted to go to heaven. Now, you say that, people are outraged, but that's the reality of it. Now, the fact that those people benefited from her agenda, you know, said, okay, fine. They benefited from it, but don't ever lose sight of the fact that that was her agenda. What these people with these biases towards CO2, of course, have that agenda, and it is the more strong agenda that he deliberately set up through the United Nations and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and the Rio conference in 1992 and so on. But there's three things that they played on here. One is people's fears. The chicken little, the sky is falling. And what the greater fear than, oh, well, you know, the world, the temperature is going to run away. We're all going to fry and die and so on. And then the second thing that they've exploited is people's lack of understanding, particularly of the science. And they're particularly effective at that because of the way that people's minds work. And I'm I'm a bit hesitant to say this, but you can divide the world into two groups of people. And the reason I'm hesitant to say that is H.L. Mencken once said, you can divide the world into two groups of people, those that will divide the world into two groups and those that won't. (laughs) And this is from my own experience. This is empirical evidence that 80% of students will avoid lab that is science courses like the plague, and 20% of the student body are comfortable in science courses. In other words, the vast majority of the public don't understand science, and are almost proud of that fact. No, I don't understand numbers. That's those weird, nerdy guys that deal with the numbers. So when they use the science to fool people, as they've done with the greenhouse effect and the climate science, that's how they're able to get away with the deception and
0: exploitation. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Listen to how powerful this is. Here's the piece of propaganda right on the front of the site at the Carbon War Room. Atmospheric concentrations of CO2 are rising due to increasing anthropogenic emissions. Unchecked, rising concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere will lead to catastrophic climate change. Lies! Now, this is Richard Branson, who gave $30 billion to the Clinton Initiative, the founder of Virgin Galactic, Virgin Atlantic Airways, and more, who I respect greatly, and who many people all over the world respect greatly. What in the heck is the problem here?
1: Okay, the problem is, and one of the difficulties, and I know you've gone through this, business is in it for profit, period. And I get very annoyed, and again, may, this may be my bias, when they use any vehicle they can to make their profit. So, for example, if I go into the grocery store and they're selling organic food, and they say, oh, we're doing it because we care about the planet and we want to produce good foodstuffs and so on. rubbish. If you're selling it because you can charge four times the price for it. If you weren't making any money on it, you wouldn't be selling it, period. So, this hypocrisy, and that, by the way, that's the one word that angers everybody hypocrisy in politics, hypocrisy in business, hypocrisy in academia. Business is about profit. I have no problem with that. Who is it taking advantage more of the eco green thing than the business world right now? They're either exploiting it purely and directly through government subsidies of solar energy and wind power, which if you remove the government subsidies, simply collapse because they can't compete. Or they're into anything, even at Exxon now. I was at Harvard and my professor said, you want to make a fortune? Well, you can produce this gas that's carbon reduced and all the rest of it. They're all exploiting it. And so Branson is doing exactly the same thing. What you have to do is recognize that, and as I said, it's that bias again. What's his bias? He's in everything for the profit. And of course, one of the things that's brought Al Gore to his knees was the exposure of his carbon footprint in his house in Virginia, but also the fact that he made fifty-two million million two two years ago off of carbon credits that he was selling or dealing with through his company, Generation Investment Management. That's where we get into these difficulties with people like Branson and so on. And of course, it works the other way, too, Kim. And again, my bias, because they say, oh, well, that Tim Ball, don't believe him. He's paid by the oil companies. Well, what a nice combination. First, he's, oh, those evil oil companies that are producing the CO2. And second, oh, he's making money off of it. Well, I've never made a penny. I've never received a nickel from any energy company. But it's a nice smear, the old adage, give a dog a bad name. So this combination of exploitation of fear and lack of understanding is the major way that they've been able to sell the public. Let me back up for a second on an example of this. I was invited to a hearing on the ozone issue in Ottawa. And there were three scientists, myself included, who with a total of about 120 years, I should say, of research into ozone in the atmosphere and climate. But ahead of us, friends of the Earth had five people making presentations. And I spoke to all of them. Not one of them had even an hour of studying or teaching or instruction in atmosphere or ozone. And then the company that produced the CFCs was sitting there And I thought, why are they so silent? They know. And I know that they know that the science is completely wrong, that CFCs are not affecting the ozone and couldn't. Why are they so silent? Well, I discovered very quickly that, of course... They kept silent about it. They said, okay, we'll be the bad person here. Oh, but we're the only company that's capable of producing an alternative. They already have in the mill eight CFCs, which became the replacement for the CFCs. They said, okay, you branded that bad. We're sorry, Mea culpa. Oh, by the way, we've got a substitute. We'll make a whole pot more money off of this thing. So this is the way that these things go on. And of course, it goes back to what we started out with, talking about biases and agendas and so on. And you can look at this with every single one of these issues, that when you look at the science of it, it simply doesn't bear up. But then you've got to look at, well, who's pushing this? What's their agenda? What's their bias? How much money is in it? And as Limbaugh always says, follow the money. That's how the world has been deceived about this CO2 and carbon and so on.
0: Can you talk a little bit about permafrost, explain what it is? Because there was an article on the Huffington Post, and I think also on a major television carrier and radio carrier. For example, in the Huffington Post, it says, and this was a month ago, Siberia's climate time bomb thawing permafrost could spell disaster in Russia. What does permafrost explain it to us? Why are they bringing carbon as one of the problems with this? What does this mean?
1: One of the things that's happening is as the idea of global warming collapsed, they changed to the climate change. And then as a lot of the scare stories that they had about sea level rising and so on were debunked, they just keep looking for new things to scare people with. And we saw ocean acidification, and we've already talked about the focus on the water issue. And cost the flowing of the permafrost was just another one of these. Now, permafrost is actually where you have the water in the ground, called groundwater, is actually permanently frozen. The soil itself doesn't freeze. The water in the ground freezes. And in areas of the world where you have deficit energy, and of course we were talking about the greenhouse effect before, the polar regions of the world, they have more energy going out than energy coming in. Therefore, they're constantly losing heat. And you can see this where the permanent snow line is. And you can see that permanent snow line as you go up the side of a mountain. Even at the equator, you get snow on top of the mountains above a certain line. Or as you go towards the poles in latitude. And you reach a line where there's permanent snow. Well, beyond that line, you're in a constant energy deficit. So the temperatures are always going to be year-round below freezing. Now, that line, of course, moves seasonally. So the snow line moves uh, south as far down as 35 degrees of latitude. Then it retreats back up to about 70 degrees of latitude uh, seasonally. During the last ice age, when the ice sheets formed over the land, the ground became frozen over a very large area. So, for example, in central Canada, And if people want to look at the map, they can look at a place called Thompson in central Manitoba. And in that city, some of the ground in the city is permafrost. It's frozen ground. And the city bylaws will not allow you to build on a property that has the permafrost. Now, it's not everywhere because it's been thawing out over the last 10,000 years as the world's warmed up. But if you're going to build on that site, you have to either put your house on stilts so the heat from the house doesn't thaw the permafrost and the house will sink down into it, or you have to thaw out the permafrost. And of course, because it's permafrost left over from the last ice age, we call it relic permafrost. Once you thaw that out, it doesn't refreeze. Permanent permafrost, north of that snow line, even if you thaw it out in the summer, it refreezes in the winter. Now, in the high Arctic or high Antarctic, Where you've got this permafrost, what happens in the summer is a layer of the soil, the water in the soil, called the active layer. The water thaws out, but beneath that, there's permafrost. So you can go to somewhere like Churchill, Manitoba, and you can walk around and the soil feels uh, warm and, and soft. But if you put a stick down, you go down about a foot and you hit the permafrost line.
0: So is it thawing?
1: The answer is that just like with sea level, yes, the sea level's been rising. It's been rising for the last 10,000 years. In the last 200 years or so, the rate of sea level rise has slowed down. The same with permafrost. So the permafrost has been thawing out. But the argument about the Russian permafrost that was particularly part of the story in the Huffington Post is based around false temperature data because during the Soviet era in Siberia, people got paid the colder the temperatures were. So what they did was they reported to Moscow much colder temperatures than were actually occurring. And of course, once the Soviet Union collapsed and they didn't get the money anymore, then they got the real temperatures. And that shows up in the record as a dramatic increase in temperature when it had nothing to do with that. And the Russians have acknowledged this. This is in the literature. This is not hidden information. The idea that the permafrost is melting at a more rapid rate than would normally occur with the emergence of the world from the last ice age is simply nonsense. Now, the argument about the permafrost is, of course, that it's very high water content soil. It's essentially bog or swamp. And it has a particular moss in it called sphagnum moss reindeer moss is another name for it because the reindeers like to eat it. As the permafrost thaws out, because it's a swamp area, it gives off methane. And of course, methane is also known as the swamp gas. And so the argument is that as the permafrost thaws, it will release the methane, and methane's a greenhouse gas, and therefore the potential for global warming is dramatically increased, and so on and so forth. So that's the basis of the story. It's got no evidence in fact And it's just simply another part of the exploitation of fear and lack of understanding.
0: I have another article I want to bring to your attention. This was in MSNBC, dated October 21st, 2010. And it reads, Arctic of old is gone, experts warn. Warmer Greenland, low sea ice, and huge glacier breakup cited in 2010 report card. What the heck is that? When you say to people, and just to illustrate. Sorry to interrupt you, but this is the. Well, no, I know. Well, yeah.
1: Noah, NOAA, of course, is one of those government agencies that became embroiled in this, and this is the problem. It's the bureaucrats that are as much the problem as anything. NOAA became involved through the World Meteorological Organization with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And so they have been falsifying the data. They have been putting out incorrect scientific information, as have all government agencies throughout the world. And recently, a group in New Zealand called the Climate Science Group threatened to take their national temperature agency to court for deliberately falsifying data, making the old temperatures colder than they actually were, which then of course meant that now today's temperatures then are that much warmer. So you can increase the slope of the temperature increase by doing that. Every government in the world has been doing this. And not only that, but they've been reducing the number of weather stations that they use to record the temperatures. But just to give you an example, and the basis of the story at MSNBC comes around this. Globally, by the way, we've gone from over 6,000 weather stations. They still exist, but they don't use them. They're using less than 1,200 of those 6,000, and they've deliberately selected stations that seem to show more warming than the other ones in order to support their story. In Canada, for example, they only use seven weather stations for the whole of Canada and for all of Arctic Canada, including the Yukon and the Northwest Territories, which is a huge area. It's an area about over half of the continental U.S., and they only use one weather station at Eureka to represent that whole area. Now, Eureka has been known, and I worked with B. Alt, who was a, an Arctic climatologist back in the 70s, Sylvia Edland, who was an expert on what are called refugia, that is areas where plants have survived previous climate change. And Eureka is well known in the literature for being an anomaly in the Arctic. It's caused by warm water welling up off the coast, uh, what's called a polynia, and you get open ice year-round in these polinias. And Eureka was deliberately chosen. And I've spoken to three people who were involved in the installation of that site and worked at that site. And they said it was chosen deliberately because it showed anomalous temperatures. And yet that one station is used to argue that the whole of the Canadian Arctic is warming dramatically. It's absolute rubbish. Now, the other thing is, in the Arctic Basin itself, the Arctic Ocean, there are no weather stations. We have no data. We have no records. And even the International Panel on Climate Change note that. And yet, here they are telling you, oh, this is happening in the Arctic Basin, and that's happening. They simply don't know. What we do know is that the Arctic ice, which we can observe from satellite, Was decreasing in area the summertime since we started keeping usable records uh, with the satellite in 1980. So the summer extent was decreasing. The winter extent has stayed pretty much the same. And that's another interesting aspect of what's been going on. By the way, that decrease in the summer extent was why people like Gore and others were saying, oh, there'll be no Arctic ice in the summer in about 10 years from now. Well, of course, the last three years it's turned around. The amount of arctic ice in the summer has started to increase again. So the trend is reversing just as global temperatures are decreasing. And so this is all part of the corruption of the data and the emphasis. The point I was going to make earlier about was: if you say to people, well, what's wrong with global warming? You see, all you hear are negative things, all problematic. Well, the truth is when something changes, some people benefit, some lose. And what you need to sort out is who's gaining and who's losing. And of course, it's that old adage about whose ox is being gored. And with warming, there's a lot of positive things about it, but nobody wants to hear that. The IPCC is set up to only look at the negative impacts, doesn't talk about any of the positive impacts at all. The truth is that global cooling is a much greater threat. But when you say to people, well, what's wrong with warming? And they look at you and they have to think. And then they'll finally say, most of them, they'll say, the sea level's going to rise. Oh, well, why is the sea levels going to rise? Oh, well, because the ice is going to melt. And, of course, that's why Gore made that such a huge part of his movie, The Inconvenient Truth, where he had the computer-generated sea level rising and Florida getting flooded, New York City getting flooded, and all these <laughs> other things.
0: Tim, it really was scary. I was scared by it. He definitely scared me. I want to read you this MSNBC short article. The Arctic, an area described as Earth's refrigerator because its ice helps keep temperatures cool, continues to warm up and is unlikely to return to earlier conditions, according to an annual report card issued Thursday by top scientists. Quote, Record temperatures across the Canadian Arctic and Greenland, a reduced summer sea ice cover and record snow cover decreases were cited as factors supporting the conclusion in the 2010 Arctic report card issued by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The report card tells a story of widespread continued and even dramatic effects of a warming Arctic. Lead researcher Jackie Richter Menge, an expert at the Federal Cold Regions Research and Engineering Lab in Hanover, New Hampshire, told reporters. She says, it is increasingly unlikely, at least in the foreseeable future, that we will return to previous Arctic conditions, she said. It is very likely warming will continue in the Arctic, she added, and planning is urgent to adapt to the changes coming. While two thousand and nine saw a slowdown in Arctic warming, the report card stated the first half of two thousand ten shows a near record pace with monthly anomalies of over four degrees centigrade, seven degrees Fahrenheit in northern Canada. Past report cards have also cited warming trends. The scientist acknowledged, but this last year has seen several anomalies: record temperatures in Greenland, the largest recorded loss of ice from a Greenland glacier, a hundred and ten square mile chunk that broke off. Peterman Glacier and a 2009 to 2010 winter that saw a blast of Arctic winds that went north-south instead of west-east, causing a deep freeze across the U.S., northeast, and midwest. And the last thing I'll tell you, it says here, that latter event, which had been registered only three times in 160 years of records, looks like it's connecting to the warming and ice loss in the Arctic said Jim Overland, a NOAA scientist responsible for the report card section on atmosphere. He says, normally we think of winds bottled up in the Arctic, he said, but now a north-south shift might become more common. As we lose more sea ice, it's a paradox that warming in the atmosphere can create more of these winter storms, he added. It goes on and on and on. If that was a great 12 paper,
1: I would fail it. And I would fire those two people because they simply don't know what they're talking about. There are fundamental basic errors in what they are saying. And, of course, part of the difficulty is that so many of these people have come out of a school system and they've come out of environmental studies programs where they've been indoctrinated. It is absolutely incredible. And I mean, I know the Americans have a much greater distrust of government than Canadians do, but I'll tell you, if you ever want a distrust of government, there's a classic example of it. Now, first of all, glaciers are calving off of Greenland and Antarctica all of the time. You remember, noticing that one article you mentioned was about increased snowfall. Right, right. Well, glaciers are formed by increased snowfall. They are created by snowfall, and what happens is enough winter snow survives the summer that you start to get layers of snow forming, and they gradually build up, and eventually, through a process called nevation, become ice. And when they get to a certain thickness, the ice becomes plastic and starts to flow. As the glacier then flows out, it breaks off. The Titanic iceberg was exactly that pattern of ice coming off of Greenland. And by the way, you want to go and plot where the Titanic hit the iceberg. It's way south of where you've seen icebergs since that time because there was warming going on. Now there's cooling again. But the other thing that they clearly don't understand is that there's a boundary between the cold polar air and the warmer tropical air called the polar front. And along that polar front in the upper atmosphere blows the jet stream, strong river of air. And it meanders, wanders north and south. It creates waves, and those waves are called Rossby waves. And this is not new scientific information. Rossby waves were identified by Carl Rossby in 1943. The shape of the waves determines the pattern of weather in the middle and high latitudes in both hemispheres. Now, you have periods when the waves are what are called zonal, that is, they're fairly low amplitude, the weather patterns are more predictable, winds are out of the northwest in, in the winter and the southwest in the summer. But then, as the temperature starts to cool down, the wave pattern changes to what is called meridional flow, that is, the winds become more north and south. And what did the guy say in the article? Oh, more north-south winds. Well, if he knew his climate and he knew his science, he would understand what's causing that. This meridional flow, of course, means that you've got much colder air pushing well south in some areas. As we've got right now, you look at Florida with the record cold temperatures now, but you also, of course, where you've got cold air pushing south, you're going to have warm air pushing north somewhere else. We're in a world in which only the warm air gets reported, and if they mention the cold air, they say, oh, that's due to warming. Well, what rubbish is that? Even the public understand the illogic of that kind of statement. So I would give it a failure for grade 10, let alone grade 12. I
0: just want to finish with this one piece. In Greenland, it says, the warmth has meant accelerated flow of meltwater from glaciers into the ocean, said Jason Box, a glaciologist at Ohio State University. As a result, he added, sea level projections will need to be revised upward. I don't understand any of this. But anyway, if what you're saying is true, and I accept that it's true from having spent a lot of hours with you and the integrity with which you work and think, but how come all of these supposed professionals are only dealing with little aspects of this. They're not dealing in a whole systems aspect to climate. How can this Jason Box, a glaciologist at Ohio State University, say what he just said?
1: How did the scientists at the Climatic Research Unit, the leaked emails, which showed their degree of duplicity? And, of course, the sad part is, and I don't know if we talked about this yet, but one of the things I watched over my career in academia was we went from publisher or perish to bring in funding or perish. And of course you get funding, and once you get funding, science goes out the window. Because you get the funding to prove something, well you'll do anything to prove what you got the funding for, even if the evidence shows you the opposite. And the opposite in science is called the null hypothesis. And of course, this is what you see, and I watch with students. They're so imbued with finding positive results that they say, this is what I'm going to pursue, And if they find evidence that contradicts it, they just ignore it. They push it aside. This is what's happening with the mainstream media now. They've got the story in their heads before they go out, and they only talk to people that are going to tell them what they want to hear. Anybody says, well, hang on a minute, oh, they just ignore that, or they're paid by the oil companies or their crackpots and so on. So the bias, and go back to the bias thing again, is just frightening, and it's occurring in the academic world, and there it's even more troubling because supposedly the academic world is beyond that. And by the way, part of it occurred with government cutbacks to universities, and universities discovered that they could simply peel a 35 to 40% off the top of any funding that an academic brought in, and therefore the academics that brought in the more funding were seen as the ones to be promoted and, and advanced. Of course, we saw this with uh, Penn State, with Michael Mann and the amount of money he was bringing in and the university whitewashing him. And the same thing has happened at the University of East Anglia because uh, they were bringing in millions of dollars into the university. It really is uh, really disturbing. And if people say, well, you're generalizing, it's not all academics. Unfortunately, Kim, my view is if... There are people that are doing things wrong. If the majority don't speak out about it, then they are accessories after the fact. They are as culpable as the people that are performing the malfeasance. I don't care what group you're talking about. And so if the majority don't act once problems are pointed out to them, then as I say, they become parties to the deception and the malfeasance in the academic world.
0: Part of the reluctance that people may have to speaking out about the propaganda of climate change is that if people are not educated as a climatologist like you are, people are told, shut your mouth, you're not an expert, you don't know what you're talking about, thousands upon thousands of experts already agree that this is happening, and you are completely not in the real world. Or... Prince Charles, who I happen to like some of the work that he's doing with the rainforest, also feels that people that are, quote, climate deniers are like flat earthers, which I resented because I'm not a flat earther. I've spent a lot of time on this. But it's a lot of public pressure when you get celebrities and heads of industries and all that. It's like going with the flow just to get along.
1: There's a couple of things about this. First of all, um, the earth is round, but I think I prefer a flat earth (laughs) because when we had a flat earth, you could push the idiots off the edge. (laughs) Now with the round earth, they just come right back at you on the other side. But um, what we're talking about here, of course, is there's a double standard. So, for example, whenever I go on a program, they say, well, how are you qualified? Give us your qualifications. I mean, in a sense, you did it at the introduction of this program. But nobody ever asked Al Gore. They never say, well, Al, what's your qualifications to appear before Senate and talk about climate change? Richard Branson, what's your qualifications? It's a double standard, and that's part of the hypocrisy that goes on. Now, with me in particular, and this is going to sound a bit egotistical, the reason that the attacks on me were so nasty and personal and vicious was because they couldn't say that I wasn't qualified. I was qualified. Therefore, I was a real threat. So they went and dug up these things about who oh, he's paid by the oil companies and he claimed that he's this and he's claimed that he's that. They falsified all of these things because they couldn't say I wasn't qualified. Now, that doesn't mean to say that nobody's entitled to opinions on things. The truth is the one thing we're all entitled to is an opinion. But again, we go back to that argument about what if somebody shows you that your opinion is incorrect, then you better be prepared to change your opinion. And I used to talk with the students about this. I said, look, if you take that argument about, well, you don't know all the information, therefore you shouldn't have an opinion, none of us will ever form opinions. But if you have an opinion and somebody shows you, no, look, uh, here's some information you didn't know about, that should change your opinion. If it doesn't, then you are opinionated. The other part of what you're asking me about is, of course, the consensus argument, that if the majority agree, then you must be wrong. This argument came up very early when they argued, oh, the majority of scientists. Well, who were they talking about? They were talking about the members of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Now, that was originally 6,000 people. It very quickly whittled down to 3,000, and now it's 2,400 people or 2,500 people. Most of them, and I would say 97% of them, are not scientists, and 99% are not climate scientists. They're economists and they're demographers looking at the impacts of climate change once you accept that warming is occurring and it's going to be devastating.
0: The majority agrees on X, whatever the X is. In this case, it's, oh, global warming. And now it's climate change is a problem versus a cycle. The majority agreed in Germany when there was a Holocaust to do things a particular way, to see things a particular way, to come from a particular paradigm of thinking. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it human. It doesn't make it acceptable. It just means the majority is agreeing on something. And the majority has been wrong before. Even that doesn't sway me.
1: Absolutely. And and of course, what's interesting about it, as I've said many times, consensus is not a scientific fact. So consensus doesn't work in science, but it does work in politics. And of course, that's, to me, is proof of how this issue has become political when they start using the consensus argument. Einstein said it with science. He said, you can have 100 facts that suggest you're right, but you've only got to get one that suggests you're wrong, and it cancels all the other 100. Science, in terms of the consensus argument, is a completely different thing than the consensus argument. And, of course, that's also how we get into ideas about groupthink, about how large groups of people are persuaded or go along, the herd instinct of humanity, and so on. And, of course, that's why it was very easy for them, and by them I mean the group like Strong that organized this whole thing, to isolate those people that were saying, hang on a minute, i got some problems with this. Now, of course, that also thwarted the scientific method, And the scientific method is that a scientist speculates, and we've talked about this before, with a hypothesis or theory based on assumptions, and then other scientists immediately start trying to disprove it. It's what Karl Popper called falsifiability. But in the case of the global warming theory, they came out with a theory. They said, well, you know, CO2 is a greenhouse gas trapping heat. It's going to increase because of humans producing it, and therefore the world's going to warm. It became a fact almost instantly, and those of us that dared to challenge it were called skeptics, when in fact all scientists are skeptics and must be skeptics. And then when the skeptic thing didn't work, because we pointed that out to them, but then all of a sudden we became deniers with all of the Holocaust connotations, which, of course, you just mentioned about. I first got called a denier in the Times of London about eight years ago. But that was, again, a measure of how the politics side of this thing and the political machinations and weapons were used in this scientific argument. And by the way, Kim, an awful lot of scientists didn't agree with what was going on. For example, a few years ago, I spoke in Winnipeg, and there were Environment Canada employees there, and said afterwards, we agree with you, but we're afraid to say anything. And I said, look, I sympathize with you. You've got a mortgage, you've got kids, you've got responsibilities, this is your career area. But you know, at some point, people have got to be able to stand up and speak out. Well, what have we got? We've had to pass whistleblower laws to protect people that are going to stand up and say, hey, there's criminality going on here, and yet we've got to protect them in a free society? Doesn't the anachronism, the paradox of that, hit anybody between the eyes? All of this, of course, as I said, is very cleverly exploited and was part of the whole deception that I happen to think is the greatest deception in human history, the whole global warming issue. By the way, just to add to your list, it's gone from global warming to climate change. And now Holdren and the White House have said it's climate disruptions. <laughs> That's the latest term. I'm it. sure.
0: I want to talk to you about the 385 parts per million in terms of the carbon dioxide where it is right now, and the optimal amount of carbon dioxide, which is a 1,000 to 1,200 parts per million of where you think optimal plant life would be and human life would be. So my question to you is, the devil's always in the details, right? Both the revelation and the devil. So let's look at the devil. They're using carbon dioxide to tell us that we have to take it way below 385 parts per million, even though it's the lowest it's been in 300 million years and make it lower. So let's say all the countries of the world banded together and decided to get rid of carbon that's being emitted from anything. What would it bring it down to?
1: We don't know. And not only that, you wouldn't be able to measure the difference. I've said on many occasions, if we took everybody off the planet and shut down everything and left one scientist behind and said, okay, you're left behind to measure changing levels of atmospheric CO2 she wouldn't be able to measure the difference. By the way, it's also been shown that you can burn all of the known reserves of fossil fuel, and it would not double the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. And so when we start to get into the details and the devil, this gives you an idea. And by the way, if we go down below 385, then the plant starts to suffer. At 250 parts per million, many of the plants are in serious trouble. And at 150 parts per million, most plants are dead. Because the plants produce the oxygen, then other life is dead on the planet. That's how critical maintaining levels of CO2 are to life on the planet.
0: How come people don't
1: get that? Partly because they don't know, partly because the mainstream media, which, of course, have the control over the public understanding of it, not only have they not reported it, but they, as you've seen with those MSNBC stories and others, they've distorted, they've grossly distorted the information. It's all about education, you know, and and the science credit course that I taught for uh, 28 years, I called it How the Earth Works, and I said, look, uh, you're citizens of Earth. You're going to have to live on this planet. You better understand how it works because people are going to exploit your lack of understanding. And, of course, that's precisely what's happened, trying to help students not be exploited by their lack of knowledge. Say you're in a room at a conference. By the end of an hour-long session, because people are breathing out CO2, the CO2 level in that room can be 1,200, 1,500, even up to 2,000 parts per million. And it doesn't affect anybody. To give you an idea, in a mine, the health and safety levels of CO2 in a mine, it can go up to 5,000 parts per million. Now, of course, they take very conservative lines, and they say if it's 5,000 parts per million, you can only be in that mine for 15 minutes, then you've got to get out but that gives you an idea of how ridiculous it is to argue that 385 parts per million is problematic. And when you look at the 600 million year geologic history of the Earth, the levels for hundreds of millions of years are above two and 3,000 parts per million. So the arguments about 385 being very low, the other place they're making that argument about 385 is they're saying, oh, well, it's risen from the pre-industrial levels. Well, there's a guy by the name of Ernst Beck who just passed away this last year, an atmospheric chemist, incredible work that he did, and I was privileged to know from the time he started his research, and I warned him that he would be attacked nastily, but there were approximately 90,000 readings of atmospheric CO2 taken, started in 1812. Now, the reason was scientists were trying to determine what the gaseous makeup of the atmosphere was. Priestley, of course, had, uh, with oxygen a little bit earlier. And so they started to measure atmospheric CO2. And what Beck found was the pre-industrial level was in fact around 360 parts per million, and that therefore there's virtually no increase since the pre-industrial level. And the other thing you need to know is that the only source of information of atmospheric CO2 we have now are from Mauna Loa and a few other stations around the world that are all controlled by the Keeling family who have a patent on the process Charles Keeling was the first guy to say, oh, CO2 levels are increasing and it's problematic. He's got a patent on it. It's just absolute rubbish. They argue that CO2 from Mount Loa is representative of the whole world. CO2 varies tremendously around the world. But all of the computer models assume even distribution and so on and so forth. So everything you look at with this is, is corrupted data, an agenda in the data. The ice core record, which came out in 1991 by Jouzel and others, showing that the CO2 level goes up and down with the temperature going back 420,000 years, and they said, oh, there's proof." The CO2 changes, the temperature changes. Well, we now know and everybody agrees that the temperature changes before the CO2. We also know, and Jaroski and others have have shown it, that the ice core readings are at least 20% low because of the method you have of extracting the gas from the ice bubbles. Every bit of this data that they present simply doesn't bear any even minimal scientific investigation and explanation.
0: Talk about your new book or the new book that <laughs> okay. you participated in.
1: Oh, then it, the problem is I, I, I didn't come on to promote the book. I'm I know, I know. But anything, share share so. a
0: little bit about it because you had a big role in it slaying the sky yeah. dragon. Well,
1: um, One of the things that we talked about in an earlier program we mentioned at the beginning of this one is about generalization and specialization. People know about Renaissance people. These are people with a very wide range of knowledge and information about music and the world and everything else. But what is defined as the last universal person is reputed to be an Alexander von Humboldt. Now, von Humboldt was a German geographer who literally went to every continent He didn't get to Antarctica because it had only been discovered in 1840 by Palmer, the U.S. Navy. But he went to every continent, described the climate, described the patterns, and so on. But he knew all of the physics and biology and chemistry that was known at that time. Now... Of course, because of him, ironically, and he's starting to describe and you start to get National Geographic and geographic societies going out and describing things, and we're learning more and more about the world, the volume of information just became overwhelming. And of course, that volume of information then required theories and and explanations and mechanisms, and it just kept proliferating until no one person could possibly accommodate it all. So the idea of being a generalist, and by the way, the the term scientist, Darwin was a naturalist. He uh, he wasn't a scientist in the definition of his time. But gradually, people became more and more specialized. And I used to joke with my students about it and say, well, you know, how many of you want to specialize? And one student always put their hand up and say, oh, yeah, what do you want to do? I want to be a doctor. No, that's not a specialization. Sorry. Red blood cells, that's a specialization. And of course, one of the things you get into with specialization is that the specialist might know a great deal about one small part of the total body, but not understand the dynamics of the whole body. And the story that I love to tell is about the patient lying on the stretcher, and the podiatrist is looking at the feet, and the nephrologist is looking at the kidneys, and the the neurologist is looking at the brain, and the nurse is in the corner saying, but doctors, the patient's dead, This is what we've got into. Now, by the way, that problem people experience in their daily lives because the general practitioner, notice that term, they're expected to know a little bit about all things. But you go with symptoms, they'll identify the symptoms, and then they try to narrow it down by process of elimination. If they can't do it, then they'll send you to a specialist who they think is the one that needs to be able to identify this for you. One of the most famous health clinics in the world, the Mayo Clinic, recognized this problem. So if you go to the Mayo Clinic, the first thing that you're sent there by, or you go with your GPs and your medical files, but the first thing that happens is they start doing a complete battery of tests upon you and each specialist looking at you and talking to you. But what they do at the end that's different than most other medical situations in the world is all of those specialists sit around at the end and compare notes. And at the end, of course, then they can come up with a better chance of diagnosing what the problem is for the total body. Now, in science, of course, what's happened is that people have become specialists in CO2 or methane And one of the places where I first realized this problem, Kim, was that a farmer was talking to me one day and I said, these people selling chemicals for your soil, why do you trust them? And he said, well, they're the only ones that can tell me about my soil. And I said, well, uh, what do you mean? And he said, well, I had a problem with my soils. I went to the university, to the uh, department that I thought was right, and they said, oh, no, we don't do soils we got a guy that can help you with nematodes, which are little worms that are important in the soil formation. We could talk to you about trace minerals like zinc or copper, but we got no soils person. In other words, what they're saying is we've got no generalist. We've got all these specialists. The analogy I like to use for the environment and for climate is that everybody's got a piece of the puzzle, but we've lost the box top. And then if you take that analogy a bit further, where you're trying to redo the puzzle, we haven't even got the four corner pieces, which is the standard way that you start to do a puzzle. The four corner pieces being the total cosmology, the space, and then the atmosphere, and then the oceans, and then the planet itself. We haven't even got accurate information on those four corner pieces yet. So we know there's four corner pieces, but we don't know the shape of them. We've only got a few of the edge pieces, And all we've been able to do is pile some of the inner pieces into different colors. And we haven't even done that accurately. So when you start to look at this problem of specialization and how it's had an impact upon climate science and our understanding of the world, you start to see why they've been able to get away with what's happened. Steve McIntyre, who was the guy that discovered the problems with the hockey stick graph, Now, that was the graph that came out in the 2001 Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, and it showed temperatures pretty constant for a 1,000 years, then suddenly an uptick in the 20th century. And they presented this as proof that it was humans caused global warming. McIntyre was at a conference, and it wasn't a climate conference. It was a conference where they were talking about graphical presentation of material, And this graph was put up on the PowerPoint, and he looked at it, and he knew instantly how they'd achieved that graph, what they'd done to manipulate it. So after the conference, he went to dig into the climate material, and of course, ended up nailing it down, showing how they had thrown out 94% of the data that they had, because it didn't give the result they wanted. How if a tree ring showed temperature going down in the 20th century, they threw it out, and they plugged in tree rings that showed it going up in the twentieth century, and that was the part of what was called the trick in the emails that were leaked, or the other phrase for it was hide the decline. Well, McIntyre was a specialist. And he knew nothing about climate science, but he spotted misuse of his particular area of expertise. So what we've tried to do in the book is I've given this preamble in an introduction and then in a a large chapter, explaining the motives, why they did this, and how they did it, and the ideas about climate as a generalist discipline. And then the other chapters are written by individual specialists. So for example, one person looking at the concept of energy coming into the earth and going out of the earth, and we talked about that earlier when I talked about the greenhouse effect. And one of the things that he points out in that chapter, and again, virtually nobody knows this, but in their computer models, they assume that the Earth is a flat disk. You want to start talking about flat Earth society? And they assume that the sun's energy is evenly distributed over that flat disk. This is so guaranteeing a false result that you don't even need to go on any further. And as I pointed out to him when I reviewed the chapter for him, I said, I want you to add in the fact that not only is it not a flat disk, it's spherical, and that introduces a whole other level of geometry called topology, and it's a spinning sphere as well. And so you want to start talking about complex geometry, it's incredible. And so we've got these individual chapters done by specialists who we went to them and said, look, this is how these climate scientists have used your area of speciality into their climate picture, and we want you to show how they've completely misused. Now, Chris McIntyre won't speak out about this because he likes to think, and and he's right up to a point, that this could have been done simply because people were ignorant and, and didn't understand what they were doing, having a formula and plugging numbers in when you don't know what you're doing. But when you see that being done time and time again in area after area, there's a pattern, what the old police call the modus operandi. And when you read all of the IPCC reports, you see this pattern everywhere you look of deliberate misuse of specialized areas. So that's the pattern of the book and why it's subtitled The Death of the Greenhouse, because, of course, the greenhouse theory is at the basis of the whole global warming, climate change argument.
0: And I must tell you, being Kim Greenhouse, it's a pleasure to be sorting the wheat from the chaff with you about this. (laughs) I'm tired of my name being impugned. (laughs) Yeah, well, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And greenhouses have been very, very beneficial to mankind, as are your programs.
0: Thank you so much. One last question for you. I know we've been talking a long time. How come you think it is that there's no wiggle room In academia, to be wrong.
1: There's a couple of reasons for that. One is, of course, that we've allowed universities to become isolated. You know, one of the things that's interesting about uh, human nature is that when it becomes separated from the main body, it stultifies, it stops changing. Now, I'll give you a completely separate example of this languages. Once English left England, and came to the US and other parts of the world, it stuck. So if you watch McNeil of McNeil and Lair, he did a book on the history of English, and he's got sections in there showing that the language of areas of Appalachia is Elizabethan English. The pronunciation, the grammars, and so on. If you go to Quebec, Quebecers speak medieval French. Even the structure of the sentences is medieval and more like English, whereas in France, of course, the language and and back in England, the languages became dynamic. And I first had a personal experience of this reading the records of the Hudson Bay Company and reading the journals from the 18th century. And they're using terminology that is no longer used in England, yet they're English people. For example, they talk about the men's apartments. Apartments don't exist in England. They're now called flats. To uh, be a little off-color for a second, they talk about son of a bitch. Well, me growing up in England, that (laughs) was strictly an American slang. You didn't hear that in England. And of course, what's happened with universities, they had what was called the town and gown fights back in the Middle Ages, where they were battling for academic freedom and independence. And of course, they finally achieved that. But they've now become the ivory towers completely detached from reality and relevance and so on, even to the point where they have defined intelligence in such a narrow way that it denigrates most of the population. I mean, one of the things that infuriates me is that, and you do it in the U.S., we do it in Canada, they do it in Britain, this assumption that every child that comes out of kindergarten is going to go to university is absolute rubbish. University is a very narrow way of thinking and analyzing and dealing with things. But by doing that, you then denigrate anybody else that doesn't get into university. So they have become completely isolated. And of course, with that isolation, you get inbreeding. (laughs) And arrogance. Tremendous arrogance. Arrogant beyond belief because, you know, my intelligence is the only form of intelligence. And if you don't have that, can't possibly be right. And by the way, there are some lovely social examples of pricking this pomposity. The movie Crocodile Dundee, it was all about the fact that here was some yabo from the outback, could survive very nicely in New York, but a New Yorker couldn't survive in the outback of Australia. And yet, who's calling who primitive? <laughs> you know. And so it was a wonderful uh, moral story about defining of intelligence. And by the way, most of the successful CEOs like Bill Gates and so on, they're usually university dropouts. And the only ones that have stayed in academia is, is the highest percentage are ones that have got PhDs in history a generalist discipline, or philosophy, a generalist discipline. And so, of course, being a good CO, you don't have to know how to make the widgets or work the machine, but you do have to know how to make what that widget maker does productive for the whole company. Everywhere you look, you see that universities have become so inbred and yet so dominate, and of course, it's no surprise that it's within those universities that, uh, like East Anglia or Penn State, that these people have been able to carry out their corruption if they did what they did in any other public walk of life other than government they'd be fired instantly
0: if you were to discover through your own investigation that there was a warming that was potentially dangerous would you shift gears would you be public about it
1: two parts of that one is Yes, I have always absolutely forced myself to say, if you find that you're wrong, you must be the first person out there saying you were wrong. You have to. If you don't keep that in the forefront of your thinking, you are so vulnerable to becoming a victim of your own biases. So absolutely. The other part of that question, of course, speaks to a problem of creating panic amongst people. Back when Reagan was the president, the U.S. Geology Society said, look, we need a political decision here. If we have research that suggests there's going to be a big earthquake, let's say in San Francisco, and we tell you about it, and it costs billions to move the people out and deal with the problem, and then it doesn't happen, are we legally liable? Or the converse, if we have information where we are pretty sure there's going to be an earthquake and we don't tell you about it and then it's discovered that we knew and didn't do anything, are we equally legally liable? And of course, this is the challenge of information that is potentially threatening. And, of course, it's why the abuse of the sky is falling theme by these people with the climate thing is so egregious. I wrote an article a little while ago, which I titled, What Happens When Chicken Little Cries Wolf? (laughs) To, to, To mix metaphors. Of course, the answer to the situation is that if you have that kind of information, the first thing you do is go out and talk to as many people as you possibly can. It's, again, the basis of what you are doing and why it's so valuable. You're just saying, okay, here's an issue. Well, I'll have that person on, but I want counter views. I want somebody else to give their view of it. A lot of times when I give talks now, Kim, I don't say good morning. I say morning. Make up your own mind. Who am I to tell you whether it's good or bad? This is the problem. There's so many people willing to tell us what to think and how we feel, and it's part of this same syndrome. So a very, very big challenge for society, and particularly problematic when people exploit it on a global scale.
0: What do you think we're going to do since the EPA now has the right to invoke punishment? Well,
1: of course, what the Obama administration has done is bypass the politicians. The founding fathers, they understood all of these things, and they couldn't understand everything of it, but they set up a system. By the way, Jefferson, for example, he didn't think any government was going to last more than 20 years. They'd all fail through corruption or getting too caught up in things. But the reason that they set up the frequent elections the way they did was to prevent any kind of demagoguery. And, of course, the recent elections in the U.S. were a good example of that. But here was somebody that for the majority of people was taking them in the wrong direction. So they had a chance, thanks to the founding fathers, to stand up and speak out about it. But as I said earlier, identifying the problem is one thing. And what we need now is the second part of it, of course, is the motive. And that's the other thing that we try to identify in our book is what was the motive behind this. Then the third thing is, well, what are the solutions? And the first thing is to be calm, sit down, gather all the information, and then set your priorities. Because you're not going to deal with every problem that comes up. And of course, this is another reason for the extremism that's gone on. This is a bigger problem. It's the end of the world. And of course, all you're doing is competing with money against other issues like health and education and all of these things.
0: I'll tell you another reason why there's great resistance to people accepting that a lot of the information has been misrepresented and distorted, which is that a lot of people feel that if you are not... A lover of the planet, if you don't have this passionate relationship with the environment, that you have a disconnect to the thing you're referring to. So people have a visceral reaction in response to someone who they feel has a disconnect to the stuff they love. That's like in the morphogenic field, if you will, of resistance. And I can appreciate that.
1: Oh, absolutely. I call that the moral high ground. You see, because environmentalism has effectively become a religion and the argument is made that if you don't go along with this, then you don't care about the children or the future or the planet.
0: But I think it is maybe in terms of what politics has done with it, it's turned into a religion like the Catholic Church. But there is a spiritual relationship to this planet that a lot of people feel, myself included. Oh, absolutely. On that basis, I understand why people would say if you don't have a connection to this, That disconnect is an opening for havoc. But what's interesting is even people who love this earth and have a connection are still making havoc with Uh, the the fact.
1: Here's here's, here's the problem. Here's the problem with that. I grappled with that for a long time. Like people were saying, you're giving comfort to the polluters. And that bothered me for a long time until I finally realized that the bigger problem is if you mislead people about a problem, then they're going to say, we don't believe anything you tell us. And that will provide comfort to the polluters far more. They say, well, those people lied to you. Why should you listen to them? And that, to me, is the bigger problem. And one of the things that infuriates me about the paradigm of environmentalism, and of course paradigm is the general way that people think and see an issue, is these extremists have said, we're the only ones that care. The rest of you don't care about the environment, but that is an outrage. Everybody cares about the environment to a greater or lesser extent. And how dare you take that moral high ground on me? But that's why, that's another proof of, of the environmental at that level, being a religion. You know, I grew up a Catholic, and, and I used to ask questions about it and say, well, look, you're telling me if I don't go to church on Sunday, I'm going to go to hell forever. Well, that's blackmail. Under justice and law that 's a crime. Here you are using moral blackmail against me, but that 's how these religious things work. By the way, India, as a nation, when they were arguing at Copenhagen and prior to it, and i 've worked with Indian climatologists uh, very good people, Tad Murthy and Madhav Kandakar, and so on, India as a nation said look it 's about priorities what you 're telling us." with what we think is very questionable science, that the temperature might go up a half a degree in the next hundred years, and it's gone up half a degree in the last hundred years, and the world didn't come to an end. We got people starving to death. Sorry, we've got greater priorities in our moral bank. So that kind of trumped the thing. And of course, then it was reinforced by the biofuels issue where you're using corn and pushing the price of corn up to the point where developing country people were starving. And what were you doing it for? So you could drive your car? I mean, come on. So it becomes this issue of values and so on. And the exploitation of the environment in the long term is going to do more harm. And we're already seeing it. The credibility of science is being questioned. These people have sold their soul for funding. Why should we believe anything, they tell us? But this I just wanted to read this, uh, Kim. Over 100 years ago, Tolstoy, the great Russian novelist, and he grappled with so many of these issues and, and other issues, but he wrote over 100 years ago, I know that most men, including those at ease with problems of the greatest complexity, can seldom accept even the simplest and most obvious truth if it be such as would oblige them to admit the falsity of conclusions which they delighted in explaining to colleagues which they have proudly taught to others and which they have woven thread by thread into the fabric of their lives.
0: That's beautiful.
1: Now, there's no way I could ever say it better than that.
0: That really puts the exclamation on oh, the whole subject.
1: And as I said, he, he's identifying that 100 years ago. And, of course, when you read Tolstoy's life, as I have done, and his whole life is grappling with, you know, he he saw that religion was corrupted, so he set up his own religion, and every religious kook in the world showed up at his doorstep. (laughs) And, 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 by the way, he finally said, I got to get away from this. And he just went to the station on, got on, on the first train that came in. He said, I don't care where it's going. I'm going to the end of the line and hide from the world. <laughs> and he's at the station master's house off in Siberia somewhere. And he's dying. And the station master, knowing who he was, got on the telegraph and,
0: and all the reporters showed up.
1: <laughs> so he just couldn't escape even at the end. So,
0: <laughs> well, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us and to share the insights and the Expertise that you have as a climatologist, and I want to know if there's anything else you'd like to say.
1: As I said, I I think that the conversion that you went through, and then the open mind that you had, and and the perpetuation of that, and the willingness to ask questions, and maintaining a balance between being a skeptic but not becoming a cynic, because it's a very fine line. That's a great
0: distinction.
1: Yeah, and it concerns me that the young people will become increasingly cynical and they're not even allowed to be young people anymore and so hopefully we can get people to understand and it's through the education that we understand and you know people say well you could have made a lot of money with your knowledge and i said yeah but that's not what education's about if i wanted to make money i'd go somewhere else So hopefully we can keep calm and we can keep getting the information out there and helping people understand and help them not be uh, taken advantage of by people who will always be there to take advantage of them.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from and listening to Dr. Timothy Ball. He is one of the authors of the new book that's out, the blockbuster called Slaying the Dragon, Death of the Greenhouse Gas Theory. He is also a writer at Canada Free Press and one of the people that began my education about climate change in general, in many aspects of climate and how to think about and understand what's going on. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you very kindly, Kim.